0: Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're still there and will be until the end of this year. We'll start the new year, Lord willing, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Last time we were together in our study through 1 Peter, we came to this text Chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And we find that Peter is talking about the subject of suffering as a Christian. Suffering, that the suffering that he's talking about is specifically suffering of persecution. He says, and he, he kind of introduces it in chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, Who is going to harm you? And essentially, what we see coming out here is this rhetorical question is this, in this rhetorical question, is an encouragement of Peter to the Christians that they not fear suffering. Do not, he has one primary goal do not be afraid of suffering as a believer. Do not be afraid of suffering persecution as a believer. Don't fear the persecution of mocking. Don't fear the persecution of ridicule. Don't fear the the persecution of being ridiculed for your stand for Christ, even when it's unpopular. In chapter 4, he's going to say, don't fear the persecution of being ridiculed by the drunkards and the debaucherous, immoral people when you decide not to imbibe and not to participate together with them. Instead of fearing, what you are to do is is, is, is honor Christ set Christ apart in your hearts as holy be so divide, be so devoted to Christ so that when they ask why you no longer run with them in the same flood of debauchery that you actually point to the hope that is in you because of Christ brothers and sisters the message is this do not fear suffering do not fear being mocked and being insulted do not fear being made fun of. Do not fear the ostracism. Do not fear even physical harm when you suffer as a Christian. Don't be afraid of that. Instead of being afraid, keep Christ in your heart as holy. Be so devoted to Jesus Christ. Now you've got to remember the whole point that he's going, trying to, to develop here. He's telling us the ways in which we exclaim the excellencies of Jesus in this world. We exclaim the excellency of Jesus through our sanctification. We exclaim the excellencies of Jesus through our submission. And we exclaim the excellencies of Jesus even through our suffering. And we ought not fear suffering. And last time we were together, we began to find find in this text, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, basically three reasons why you ought not to fear it. One, do not fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered once for sins. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of the unrighteous. The righteous one for the unrighteous many. Why? In order to bring us into communion with God. You don't have to fear suffering because you are brought into communion with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. He has introduced you to God. He has brought you into the family of God as a welcome, listen, a welcome and well-pleasing member of God's family. If people are going to ostracize you, what you need to remember is that you would never be ostracized by God. You have communion with God, but not only in the cross of Christ did he bring us into communion with God, he also conquered even the most evil of demons. Remember, it says here that that, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, let me say this, Jesus did not go to hell. That actually is the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. People like Joyce Meyer, people like Benny Hinn, people like uh, Kenneth Copeland, they, those are the ones who believe that thing. What they say is that Jesus actually went to hell to be punished by Satan. They say Jesus went to hell, and he was being punished by Satan, and as he was being punished and pummeled by Satan and his demons, God couldn't take it any longer, and so he said that's enough, and then he raised him again, which was, they say, well, Jesus was the first one to be born again. No, Jesus did not go to hell. Rather, we understand that Jesus went to this place called paradise... Same thing that Peter is, or that Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter two, verses fourteen through fifteen. Jesus went to this place called Paradise, where he announced his victory, such that even the fallen angels in the abyss heard it. So, very simply, we do not, we ought not fear suffering. We ought not fear suffering because we've been brought into communion with God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ conquered, triumphed over the most heinous of demons. Do not fear what man can do to you because of the crucifixion of Christ. We boast only in the cross of Christ. We don't boast in our work. I'm nothing special. Now, by necessity, whenever we think of of Christ and his work on the cross, we must also consider his resurrection. Let me read the text for us again, and I'll show you how Peter does that. Verse 18 of chapter 3. not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through, look at this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now today I want to show you the second reason why we do not fear suffering. First reason, we don't fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. Second reason we don't fear suffering I'm not afraid if you're going to mock me, ridicule me, whatever, for my stance for Christ. I don't fear that because not only of Christ's crucifixion, but because of Christ's what? Resurrection. Christ's resurrection. And I'm just going to get to this point today, and then we'll finish this next week with the third point, and that is we don't fear suffering because of Christ's glorification. But now we do not fear suffering because of Christ's resurrection. I'm just going to look at verse 21 today. It's an interesting verse. And I want to show you in verse 21 three parts. The first part I want to show you is an analogy. An analogy we're supposed to see. Then secondly, there's an appeal that we're supposed to hear. All right? An analogy, an appeal. And then thirdly, there's an assurance that we are to believe. That's all there in verse 21. The mention of Noah causes Peter to see an analogy. There's an analogy that we are to see. The mention of Noah causes Peter to see an analogy, an analogy with salvation. What is an analogy? An analogy is a picture. It is not an exact replica, but here we have an analogy of salvation. Now think about this. Just as Noah entered the ark and was saved, what Peter is saying is, all of those who enter into Christ... And only those who enter into Christ are the ones who are saved. Everyone who is united to Christ is saved from the wrath of God. Baptism, he says, which is an analogy of this, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, I want you to listen carefully to J.B. Phillips' translation of verse 21, because I think it's really helpful. Here's what he says. Here's his translation. And I cannot help pointing out what a perfect illustration this is of the way You have been admitted to the safety of the Christian ark by baptism. Which means, of course, far more than the mere washing of a dirty body. It means the ability to face God with a clear conscience. For there is in every true baptism the virtue of Christ rising from the dead. Peter wants us to see an analogy. There is a picture of this salvation in the ark through the water. There's an example. There's an analogy of that. What is the analogy that, that comes to Peter's mind? What is the analogy that he wants to see? What is it? It's baptism. Which is significant. I think it's interesting that we, we're doing that today because we have the opportunity to, to witness baptism later. Now the point is not baptism per se, but the point is, again it's an analogy, the point is what baptism is all about. It is, it is a symbol. I believe that Peter here is talking about Water baptism. I don't think he's talking about spirit baptism. I don't think he's only talking about spiritual union with Christ. I think he's referring to water baptism. If you want to know later, if you want to get into this later, I can talk to you about that. I'm just trying to summarize it and be brief today. But he's picturing here water baptism as a symbol of those things. Water baptism is a symbol of this union with Christ. When we believe Christ, we are already baptized or we are immersed with Christ. And he's saying that baptism, water baptism, corresponds to this entering the ark and being saved from the destruction of the water. In other words, our water baptism is a symbol of our spiritual union with Christ. Now, of course, the problem here most of us would have is in verse 21, he says these, these little words here, now saves you now saves you. And how are we to understand that? Well, I think you probably already know how to understand that. He's not talking about baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is the teaching that one becomes born again through the act of water baptism. We we already know, the rest of Scripture makes it very clear, that baptism as an act doesn't save anyone. We know that from the rest of the Scriptures. What Peter is doing is he has this analogy that he wants us to see. And what's the picture? Baptism, and I'll say water baptism, is a reflection of our union with Christ. Water baptism is a reflection of our oneness with Christ. Baptism as an act only reflects that spiritual reality. In fact, I'll say it this way, baptism as an act is only valid when it reflects that spiritual reality. Baptism, or immersion into water, reflects a spiritual union with Christ. A spiritual immersion into Christ. Into both His death and His what? Resurrection. So baptism, or being united with Christ, Peter would say, now saves us. Why? Not because of the act of baptism, but because we, are be- we have been united to Christ. So he has that analogy for us to see. He wants us to see Noah in the ark through the water, and then that makes him think of, of Christians in Christ in the midst of the baptismal waters. But then he goes from an, a, an analogy for us to see to an appeal for us to hear. Now follow the, the way of thinking here. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. He's not talking about outward cleansing. That's what happens in the immersion process. He's not talking about outward cleansing. He wants us to hear this appeal. Peter's making a break with the Old Testament ceremonial washings in that he makes clear he's not referring to outward cleansing. He's not talking about removing dirt from the body. He's not talking about a bath. There's nothing special about the water, per se. The ritual itself doesn't save anyone. But what he says is, I'm referring to baptism as being an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, think about this, friends. The act of baptism is viewed as an appeal to God. And that's very important. The word appeal here refers to a question. An inquiry. Now, in the early church... When somebody believed, they were immediately baptized. And in that baptism, they were generally asked a the question. They were, there was a, an inquiry, something like, do you pledge yourself to follow Jesus as Lord? Or are you trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sin? But here, Peter says that baptism is not something that's being asked to us. But baptism is actually something that's an inquiry to God about what? An inquiry, an appeal to God for a clear conscience. What he's talking about here is the spiritual character of the act, not simply external purification. In other words, the one who trusts in Christ alone is seeking for or longing for God to cleanse his or her conscience from the knowledge of the condemnation for their sins. That they know they, that is rightfully theirs. You heard that when Jack and Sarah Beth's testimony, didn't you? Resonating throughout their testimony. We had this sense of our guilt. This sense of our shame. This sense of condemnation that was weighing on us. That longing for the removal of that. Condemnation, that seeking to be forgiven, is expressed through the Christian ordinance of baptism. One pastor said this What is baptism? Baptism is a symbolic expression of the heart's appeal to God. Baptism is a calling on God, it is a way of saying to God with our whole body, I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark. You see, there's an appeal for a cleansing of the conscience, an appeal to God for a good conscience, being free from any and all condemnation because of sin. In baptism, if you will, baptism is this outward plea to God for a pure conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that the act has any merit. The act is an expression of faith. The act is a trusting of God for a pure conscience. Asking Him to wipe the slate clean. Works can't do that. Works cannot... Make your conscience clean. Hebrews 9.9 9, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's only through Christ. Therefore, brothers... The writer of Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see that picture there? There's an analogy we're to see, but there's also an appeal that we are to hear. Here, there's a silent appeal that we will hear in those baptismal waters. Brothers and sisters in Christ who have been made righteous through the singular act of the Lord Jesus Christ, uniting themselves to Him and silently declaring, not unlike what we declare when we take communion together, we proclaim the sufficiency of His death until He comes. We're saying, I'm clean. There is an analogy that we're to see. There's an appeal that we're to hear. But there's also an assurance that we're to believe. Or maybe I can say it this way, an assurance we're to receive. But as an appeal, he says in verse 21, to God for a good conscience. Look at this. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the point of it all. It's through the resurrection of Christ That we appeal to God for a clean conscience. In the very act of baptism, we have the picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. But listen, we are reminded that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Such that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. In other words, because of the resurrection of Christ we can have the the absolute guarantee of of acceptance, the acceptance of His sacrifice on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 4.25, the Lord Jesus was raised because He had fully, fully accomplished our justification. In other words, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Father's stamp of approval on the work of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, For if Christ were not risen, it would would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. He said, Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction. God declaring it is enough. And that's the key. That's the key to clear and clean your conscience. That's the key for a good conscience. Our justification is what grants us a clean conscience of hope. If you have no justification, you have no hope. You remain under the guilt of your sin, right? At the last trumpet, you will not be raised up. Death will be your greatest enemy. Death will usher you into eternal darkness. Death will have a sting for you. But if you're justified... And you can know you're justified. If you're justified, death has no sting. John 8.51 says, you'll never see death. 1 John 3.14 says, you have passed from death to life. 1 John 5.12, he who has the Son has life. John 5.24, you will never be judged, but you will pass from death into life. Here's the point. We were united in the death of Christ. And thus His death satisfied the wrath of God and paid the price for our sin. But we are not only united to Christ in His death. We say that even, don't we? Buried in the likeness of His death. And then what do we say? Do we leave that person there? Do we leave them there? My goodness! No! We say, Buried in the likeness of his his death and raised, praise God, raised to walk with him in newness of life. His death satisfied the wrath of God and paid the price for our sin. But as Christ lives, so do we. His life from the dead is the declaration that he was accepted so that everyone who is in Christ is also accepted before God. It is the absolutely for sure pledge from God that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has a good conscience. And in good conscience we can say, I'm a child of the King. A child of the King with Jesus my Savior. I'm a child of the King. There is no threat of death that could ever take away the life that we have in Christ. For me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. There is no pang of pain that could wound the life which is ours in Christ. Because the grave could not hold Him. Death could not restrain Him. Sin could not defeat Him. So I don't fear suffering. Because of His resurrection. I love that hymn we sing, Death Cannot Keep His Prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph o'er His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose. He arose. What? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Christ arose. The resurrection of Christ is God's declaration. That you and I don't have to do something special. You and I don't have to be someone extraordinary. I told you before. I remember being in elementary school 150 years ago. And we had time to go out to play at recess. Recess. One of our favorite things to do was to play kickball or football. And there was one kid in our school. He was just bigger than everyone else. He was tougher than everyone else. He was better than everyone else. And there's no way else to say it. Listen, I knew that as long as I was on his team, it didn't matter who was on the opposing team. I didn't have to be anything special. I didn't have to do anything extraordinary. Because why? He'd just take care of it all. As long as I was on his side, we were going to win. You could mark it down. How much more with Christ? When you are united to him, it is, it is the assurance not only of his victory, but of ours. So why would you fear someone making fun of you because you love Jesus? Go ahead. Make fun. Why would you fear someone threatening you? <laughs> the nations rage. And he who sits in heaven holds them in derision. He laughs. You so say you're going to kill me if I don't stop following Christ? You can't. I have already passed from life, into, uh, from death into life, and I have that marker, that silent declaration, that silent appeal that was marked some years ago when I was buried in the waters of baptism and raised to walk with Him in newness of life, not because of some work of my own but because of His all-sufficient work. I don't fear. And you ought not fear either. Don't fear because of the crucifixion of Christ. And don't fear because of the resurrection of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together.